we're going to continue our series in the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. Colossians chapter 1. I got my water. It's going to be good. All right. I think probably for me, one of the greatest burdens of my life has been watching people in my family and watching people who are dear friends be close enough to the things of God to think that they are safe, but far away enough to not be. What I mean is that there are people in my family who think if they were to die right now would go to heaven, but I do not have such confidence. I look at them and I look at their life and I look at the things that they say versus the way that they live and their actions and not just their actions, but just the whole picture and think, do you really know Jesus? Maybe they do, but it's one of those places where you're just not quite sure. It breaks your heart. Because if you go to them and begin to, like, evangelize them, tell them about Jesus, they'll be offended because they think they believe. So what are we to do? Maybe you have people in your life. Maybe friends, maybe coworkers, maybe neighbors, maybe family. And you're just not quite sure not quite sure that if they were to die today, where they would go. Not quite sure that they are living their life now with the abundant life that Jesus offers. And it breaks your heart and you don't quite know what to do. There are those in the church today who would say we need to remove the difficult parts, the parts that are hard to swallow of the gospel, to make it easier for people to believe. There are those who would say things like, you know, let's just not worry about the Bible being God's word, or let's not talk about the difficult parts. I remember when I was a youth pastor, we had this guy come out after the service. Our pastor was preaching, and we were having communion that day, and, and he was kind of using this illustration. He had this cup, and he was pouring out the water into another cup, talking about how God would pour out his wrath on his son. And this guy, when he, would, he left the church that morning, he had a scowl on his face. And the pastor put his hand out to shake his hand, and he wouldn't shake it, and he said, I can't believe you would say that. What are you talking about? I can't believe in a God who would pour out his wrath and his justice. I believe that Jesus died on the cross only to demonstrate his love, not to actually do anything. And there are those who would say that we need to remove these difficult parts. But what I would say is that if we remove the offensive parts of the gospel to attract the world, then in the very process of attracting them, we will lose the radical truth that alone can save them. There are many here this morning who want to see this church grow. There are many here this morning who want to see their neighborhoods and their, this community and their schools and their jobs transformed. So what do we do? Let's read Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 23 and see. The most important thing we do this morning is read from this book. Because this old, old book are the very words of God. So let's read it together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. The words of our God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, say, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you... 
who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Three things this morning I want us to see. The first one is our need. A lot of the language used in this text that we just read is really pointing us backward, pointing us back to the Old Testament, and particularly alluding to the way that people in the Old Testament connected to God. Notice verse 19 where he says, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right? So now for us as Christians, God dwelt in Jesus, and now the Spirit fills us when we believe, and so the Spirit of Jesus fills us, and so wherever we go, God is, right? We don't have to come to this building to meet with God. We don't have to, you don't need me to meet with God. You don't need a priest. You don't need a Bible. He's in you. Anywhere you go, you can't get away from him. You want to pray, you want to meet, you want to be in the presence. Anywhere you go, you have him. Right, but that's not always been the case. Right, in the Old Testament, that was not the case. God is always everywhere. He's omnipresent. But in the Old Testament, he placed his special presence, his divine Shekinah glory, the Bible calls it, his special presence in the temple and in a particular spot in the temple. And if you wanted to meet with God, you had to go there. So how did this temple work? See, the closer you got to the inside the closer you were to meet with God. So let's just use our building for example. Right, so the outer hallways here would be the places that only the Gentiles could go. That'd be all of us non-Jewish people in this room. So we could only go out here in the hallway, but then the women would only be allowed out there in the foyer, out there in the lobby. Y'all could only go out there. You couldn't come in here. But then the men were allowed to come in here, but then only the priests were allowed to come up on the stage and the holy place. But then there was a curtain, kind of like this one, that had been pulled back, and behind that curtain was the holy of holies, was the place that God was. And if anybody just decided to run back there, move the curtain, and jump in, they would drop dead. This is the special presence of God, and only the high priest, and only once a year could go back there, and only after he made a sacrifice for himself could he go back there to sacrifice for the whole of Israel. If you wanted to meet with God, you had to go there. And depending on who you were, you got greater access to God. But not only that, if you came into that temple unclean, you wouldn't be allowed in. You know, when we go on our Bible reading plans, you know, the new year's getting ready to come, and so we're all getting ready to say, I'm going to read the Bible through in a year. And we do it, and we get through Genesis and Exodus, and then we hit Leviticus, and we, we just can't make it through. Right? Just can't make it through Leviticus. And I get it. But if you read Leviticus, it's just law and regulation and rule after rule after rule, right? It's like if you do this, you're unclean. If you do that, you're unclean, right? If you touch a dead body or dead animal, you're unclean. If you eat bacon, you're unclean. I mean, come on. Who doesn't like bacon? So if you eat bacon, you're unclean. If you have a skin disease, you're unclean. You got really bad acne, you're unclean. You get sick. You're unclean. If you're bleeding, you're unclean. 
And if any of those things and lots more are true of you, you don't get to go in the temple. You can't go in the temple, which means you can't be in the presence of God. You can't commune and meet with God. You could be desperate for him. You could long to be with him, and you don't have access. You are cut off. You are unclean. You were not fit to be in there. It doesn't matter how much you wanted him. So why is that? Why all of these rules? Why all these regulations? That seems so insignificant, right? Like, it seems pointless. Why does it matter if I touch a dead cow? Why does that restrict me from meeting with God? You see, God was using external, outside of us things that made us dirty to reveal and to show us the actual condition of our hearts. See, our hearts and our lives are unclean. And God is showing us that we continually do things that make us unfit to come into his presence. See, before you come to Jesus, you and I in this room are unclean, and we were unfit to be in the presence of God. We couldn't know God. We were not allowed to come in. We were unfit. We were unclean. And it's not the external things that made us unclean. It wasn't touching dead animals. It it wasn't having bad acne. It wasn't having leprosy. It wasn't bleeding. It wasn't being sick that keeps us from God. But it's every time you gossip about your neighbor that keeps you from knowing God. It's every time that you get angry. It's every time that you feel pride and feel better than others. It's every time you look things up on the computer, you know you shouldn't. And it's all of those things that's showing you that inside your heart there is sickness. It's not the sickness on the outside that makes you unclean. It's the sickness on the inside. And that's not just one or two or five of us in this room. That's every single one of us. There is no one who is excluded from this. Every one of us come unclean and are unfit to know God unfit to enter into his presence. Verse 21 is true of us. It says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That was us. Our minds are hostile to God. Think about that word hostile, fighting, angry. Our minds are against God and our lives do evil deeds against him. But notice what it says. It says that we are alienated from God. You see, apart from Christ, you and I have zero, no hope of forgiveness, no hope of knowing God, no hope of abundant life, no hope of heaven. We are alienated. When I was in high school, I had a really bad acne, right? And it was the kind, you know, like, it was so embarrassing when you would, you know, be in class or be whatever, and someone would go, hey, you're bleeding. Your face is bleeding, right? Or you have this giant white head on your face, and you're like, ah, and you're trying to pop it. Right, and every, you just know, you, go, you wake up in the morning, you're getting ready, and you look at it, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer right now. And you just know everyone is walking by going, and just looking at that thing, right? Doesn't see you, but sees that. And so in high school, I felt so out of place. I, I bounced around from friend group to friend group, right? Never quite feeling connected, never quite feeling like I belonged. And I, for a while, I hung out with the Rednecks, Wore Carhartt jackets, camo pants, talk about hunting and mudding. But then that, I just didn't quite fit in the whole way with all their stuff. And so I kind of moved on. And then I hung out with the jocks as I played football and wrestled and played baseball. And, you know, I thought, well, I could probably fit in with them. And I kind of did. 
after a while, I just didn't quite feel like I belonged. I hung out with some nerds for a while, and they were super accepting, but I didn't quite feel like I belonged there either. And so my whole high school career, I never felt like I belonged anywhere. I was alienated. Until one summer, my neighbor invited me to go to camp with him. And I went to this camp really because I wanted to meet girls, to be honest. That's how he got me. And so I'll go to this camp and think we're going to meet girls. And, and, and I'm, here's where I'm at. I'm at a place where I, I believe in God. Who doesn't believe in God, right? I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the whole nine. It's great. Good. Awesome. Right? And so I go to this camp. It's Jesus camp. And I'm trying to meet girls. But then the whole week, you know, I met a lot of girls. That's been fun. That's been great. Right? Didn't think Jesus was better at that point. Thought girls were better. And so I go to this camp. And then there was a particular night where God just smacks me in the face and say, wake up or unclean. And you don't know me. You've been pretending and playing this game. Like going to church does something for you. Like believing in God does something for you. You have not bowed your knees to me as king. So that night I did. What I found that I was no longer alienated. I found a home. That I belonged to God. And I belonged to a church family. A family that was thicker than blood, right? That I belonged, I was no longer alienated. I belonged to God. See, apart from Jesus, you don't belong. Apart from Jesus, you're not his, you're not fit to know God. From the moment we are born, we are born in sin, the Bible says, and from the moment of our birth, we are not fit, we're unclean can't go in, can't have access to him. There was a guy on his, on his deathbed who lived a rough life, not a follower of Jesus, and on his deathbed was asked the question, are you afraid? Are you scared? Where are you going to go? What's going to happen? And he said, no. He said, God will forgive me. That's his job. There are so many of us in this room who might feel, so many of us in this community who might feel that it is God's job to forgive you, that it is his obligation to forgive you. It's not his job. You remember the story of Uzzah in the Old Testament when they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant? There's these guys and they've got these poles, right, and they're carrying this chest, right, which is the, which where the presence of God was, and they were taken to the temple, and they're carrying it, and one of them trips and Uzzah reaches up to catch the ark to balance to keep it from falling. And the second he touches it, he drops dead. You see, because when you and your sin and your guilt encounter the holiness and goodness of God, drop dead. We are, we are guilty before him. God's job is not to forgive you. His job is to promote goodness and justice. And we stand before him guilty. And so when we assume that we're safe, when we assume that our family is safe, that our friends are safe, right, because they say they believe in God, we find them in a dangerous position. For many of us, the reason, many of us in this room, the reason it is so difficult for us to uh, share the gospel with our loved ones is because before we can share Jesus with them, we first have to convince them that they're lost. That is the hardest thing to do. Take me someone who is as far an atheist as possible all day versus someone who is close enough to Jesus and not close enough to know him. 
C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters talks about this. You'll know Screwtape Letters, it's this book where there is a, a demon who is writing a letter to his nephew demon on how to tempt someone. And he basically tells him, give him just enough religion to make him feel safe. Give him just enough to make him feel safe, but not enough to actually save him. And I fear that many, many people are in that position. Many people in my family are in that position. In order to see them come to faith, we must first convince them that they're lost. Because most people don't think they're unclean, right? Most people, we look, we're good old boys. We're good people, not bad. We don't think we're unclean, undeserving to come into the presence of God. I mean, look at the world. Get all the crazy people in the world. We're pretty good. We think that we should, we should make it. God should just handle it. When in reality, our hearts are sick and we're alienated from God. We don't belong to him. You see, we were all created for a better world. We were all created for a better kingdom. But you and I were born as citizens of this world, and we have become too much like this world. We're not fit for the kingdom of God for our true home. But see, here's the thing. The second thing I want us to see is, is the only way. Jesus made a way for us to come home to be citizens of that kingdom, but there is only one way. And let me be very, very clear. At a time in, a, in our country and society where it is a controversial thing to say that there is only one way to know God, there is only one way to know God. There is only one way to have access. There is only one way to get into his presence. There is only one way to have forgiveness. There is only one way to get to heaven. There is only one way have life and have it abundantly, and it's through Jesus. In the Old Testament, when you were unclean and wanted to go back into the temple after you had touched a dead, something dead or been sick or whatever, you had to go and wash first, but then you had to go and kill an animal. You had to go and slit the throat of a goat or of a dove or of a bull and spill its blood because something had to die in order to make you clean to get in. You see, a debt had to be paid. A debt had to be paid to get you in, and the same is true for us. Imagine with me for a minute that I'm driving my truck out through the parking lot when we leave here, and one of y'all couldn't park real good, and I wasn't quite paying attention because I was texting and driving, and I'm driving, and I hit your car. And I'm like, oh, great, pastor, week three, hit someone's car. And I'm, so I'm out there, like, freaking out. Go find whoever it was and say, hey, I'm so sorry I hit your car. Well, at that point, something's got to happen. There is a debt, and it's got to be paid. And either I can pay it or the person I hit can pay it. But one of us have to. Either I can say, hey, I'll take care of it, let me give you some money, or my insurance will call yours, whatever, and I'll take care of it, and I'll pay the debt. Or you can say, no, don't worry about it, it's fine. I got a guy. He'll take care of it. But when you do that, that's forgiveness. Forgiveness is you pay the debt. And it doesn't just work in physical things with money, but it also works practically, right? Like, imagine with me for a moment that someone betrayed you, someone slandered your name, someone was gossiping about, it, about you and just tore your name down, did something to hurt you, to offend you, to wrong you. Well, now there's a debt that has to be paid. And the wronged party can pay the debt, right? You can go to the person who wronged you and you can hit them in the face. Pay that debt right now. You can go and slander their name. You can go talk behind their back. Right? You can do lots of different things to them, to, and, and then we're even, right? Debt's been paid. But if you want to forgive them, if you want to forgive them, if you want to pay the debt, that means you take all of the anger, all of the bitterness, all of the hurt, 
yourself. Don't gossip about them. Don't slander them. Don't go punch them in the face. You bear it, and you hurt. You take it into you until it's gone. And that's forgiveness. And do you know that is exactly what Jesus has done for you? It's exactly what Jesus has done for you. You see, on the cross, Jesus is not just demonstrating his love for you, but rather he is accomplishing something for you. You have a debt to be paid before God. And either you can pay the debt or God will pay the debt for you and forgive you. You can pay the debt, which is an eternity in hell, or God, who would send his son, who is God in the flesh, would come. And on the cross, do you know what he was doing? He was absorbing the debt. He took all of the justice and righteousness and and anger that you deserve, the punishment you deserve, and he took it upon himself. He absorbed the debt so that you go free. Jesus has paid the debt that you owed so that you could go free. As we take communion today, one of the pictures I want us to see is that in the garden before Jesus was crucified, he talked about a cup a cup of wrath that was going to be poured out on him. That's exactly what's happened. When he's paid that debt for you, he's taken that cup of wrath and he's poured it out on himself. But now, guys, listen to me. When you're in Christ, that cup is empty. Every drop has been drained. And so on your worst day, when you fail, when you mess up, when you sin, when you screw up, he can't be angry at you anymore. The cup is empty. He can't punish you anymore because the cup of wrath is empty. It's been poured out. It's been paid for. The debt has been paid. Verse 19 says that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. And verse 22 says he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Someone had to pay your debt. Someone had to die. and Jesus did it. Here's the thing. Every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world, here's what they say. You've got to do A, B, and C to get to God. Here's the ladder. If you do this, this, and this, then you can get to God. If you're holy enough, if you're good enough, if you do these religious things, then you can get to God. Only Christianity, only Christianity says there is nothing you can do to get to God, but God comes down to get you. There is no ladder that you could climb. There is not a amount of holiness that you could do. You can be good enough. You couldn't do enough to get to him, but he came to get you and put, him, put you on his back. And only Christianity says you can get in by grace alone and nothing that you could do. But notice the result of what Jesus did. Do you know what Jesus' death means for you? When you place your faith in him, do you know what it means? Notice verse 22, he says, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Here's what it means. When you're in Christ, when God looks at you, his heart skips a beat. When you're in Christ and God looks at you, you take his breath away. He has made you blameless and holy and above reproach. He has made you radiant He is like a groom on their wedding day. Because you know, at a wedding, everyone's looking back and forth, right? They're doing this number, right? They want to see the bride, but they want to see the groom's expression as soon as she comes out. And so everybody's phones are here, phones are over here. Everybody's looking back and forth because they want to see the groom's face light up. They want to see him weep. They want to see his expression for his bride. And God does the same thing to you in Christ. You are not just some scum that he's forgiven. You are made beautiful and radiant and holy, and you take God's breath away. On your worst days, you make his heart skip a beat. 
give him butterflies in his stomach. He has made you beautiful. And that's good news for us today because we know that we're not quite beautiful. You know, I, you are in Christ. You can finally belong. Some of us, your high school story is similar, than, similar to mine. Some of us is similar to mine right now. Some of us, even our adult lives feel like that, that we don't feel like we belong. Feel like our prayers don't get past the ceiling. We feel like we can't have access to God. We feel like we're the Gentiles out in the hallway and we can't get in here to meet him. But when you throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus, you see his body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. It makes you beautiful. You belong. Know him. Be a part of his family. No longer an alien or an outcast. You can be his citizen. So maybe you're like me and you have friends and loved ones and coworkers and classmates who don't know Jesus. And maybe you're like me and those people often believe that they're safe because they see themselves as good. And maybe you're like me and you want to see those people, your family, those you love, come know Jesus and see their lives transformed. And you're asking the question, what do I do? What do I do? Share them this message. The only way. Again, again, and again. Don't keep silent. Don't believe the lie that says my actions are enough. My life lived out is enough. Speak the gospel to them. Share your story about how you were once blind, but now you see. You were once lost, but now you're found. Keep sharing. Because this message, church, this 2,000-year-old message of a crucified and risen Jesus is the only thing that's going to save your friends and family. It is the only thing that's going to save this community. It's the only thing that's going to save your coworkers and all the people around us. And we cannot forsake this message to try to make it cool, to try to make it palatable for people. Because if we do, then we'll lose the very thing that can save them. The message of the debt has been paid. The wrath has been poured out. We were once unclean, but now we've been made clean through Jesus and we have access to God. We get to, this curtain has been torn in two and we get to go in and not die. We have access to the creator of the world. And it's this message alone that can save us. When I was in my last church, there was a particular Sunday where this uh, old man was being baptized. He was probably 80 years old. And as he stood in the waters of baptism, he said, I've been going to this church a long time, but I've been standing on the sidelines. I've watched my wife and my children and my grandchildren come to faith and be baptized. I've watched them follow Jesus, but I've been playing games with God and I've not followed him. I've been playing games and I've been on the sideline and today that changes. And I've cried, I cried like I never cried before. One, because it was a beautiful picture of the gospel, but two, because it gave me hope. It gave me hope because maybe my grandpa will come to faith. Maybe my grandpa, before he dies, believe in Jesus. Maybe those in my family who don't know will come. It gives us hope because it's not too late. Keep sharing, keep telling them about Jesus. Church, we cannot rest until every person in Warren County, 
Mainville, townships, village, however this thing works. I don't get it yet. But we don't get to rest until everyone knows that their debt has been paid. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and he blessed it saying, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and said, drink from this cup of the new covenant in my blood that's poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. This morning, we're going to have a time of response. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And there are some of you in this room, and you belong to God through Christ. And I want you, in a minute, to come and feast on him. Feast on this gospel meal. And I want you to remember. Memory is a powerful thing. You can smell something, and it can take you back 20 years to a memory that you have. I don't want you to, to touch it, to smell it, to taste it. And I want you to remember the moment you gave your life to Christ. But I want you to remember further back than that. I want you to remember 2,000 years ago when God came down and he crucified his son so that your debt could be paid. His body was broken and his blood poured out so that you could know him, so that he could make you beautiful. I want you to remember that. And as you take it, know your sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. It's been wiped clean. There is no guilt. There is no shame that you ever need to Parents, parents with children in this room, I want you to use this moment to teach them. They're not believers. Don't let them take this. This is not for them. Use this moment and teach them that when they come and claim the promises of God, when they come and believe for themselves, then they too can. There are some of you in this room. You know deep in your heart you're not his. This meal is not for you. The meal is not for you. Don't come up here and take it. Instead, I'll be up here. Come, let me share with you what it means to follow Jesus and how you can find new life today. Don't wait. Stop putting it off. Don't let your pride get in the way. Throw yourself on his mercy and he will make you new. And then you can take this. And then you can belong like you never have before. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Father, we pray this morning for those friends and family members who we love so dearly that are so far from you. Or maybe they're so close, but because they're so close, they can't see how far they are from you. They think they're good enough. They think coming to church does something for them. But God, they know deep in their heart they're not yours. God, this morning we pray you would save them. We pray that you would embolden us in this room to go share Jesus with them. We pray you give them life they've never known. Help them to stop fighting, to let go of their clenched fist, find new life. God, this morning as we respond and take this supper together, we pray you would remind us that our guilt has been atoned for, that you have taken away our shame, our guilt, and you've made us new. That we don't have to live in fear and worry that you are going to be angry at us because you've made us beautiful in your sight. Paid the debt. Love us. Genuinely love us. So much so that at any moment, you could have called the whole thing off. You could have said, no, the cross is too much. I don't want to do it. It's going to be too painful. It's going to be too hard. But instead, you looked at us and said, no, I want them. And you ran the race. You took the cross. You took the torture. You took the beating. You took the wrath of God for us because you loved us. 
God, as we take this meal this morning, remind us of that. God, remind us of Calvary. Let us taste and see and wonder at the mercy and goodness of God. Stand, we pray, all people said. Stand and respond how you need to. Communion's here, come on up.
God of peace himself sanctify you. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be found blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls you.
Go in peace.